Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with my bestest podcasting pal, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Woo! You're, hey, you're Sean. all excited, looking forward to March Madness. Yeah, it's, it's a cruel facade, this excitement. Uh, yeah. I did a lot of praying to basketball gods this weekend as our team uh, got to the final game of the ACC championship, and it, it was... It was a sad ending, and, and honestly, every single game was just rough. I felt like I got just beat up all weekend long, even when we won. Yeah. Uh, but that's the way basketball is. She's a harsh mistress. She giveth, she taketh away. Yeah, and, and the sense of entitlement coming from you is incredible, because no matter <laughs> what happened in that in that tournament, your team would have been going to the, the big dance. Uh, uh, so, we are you know, fortunate. Yeah, so it's not like the, the other 150 six teams out there that must win every game to uh to make it to the tournament whereas that sounds like, yeah, lousy why would yeah, you do that yeah isn't that isn't that uh the we are those other teams not playing harder what's wrong we plebeians <laughs> out here uh in the I'm basketball kidding. world who who are overjoyed to get an nit seat uh for our teams but you know go go bonnies uh we'll, we'll see how that goes Woo-hoo. But uh, yeah, so also D and D stuff uh, is happening. I've, I've oh, heard so much. Yeah, and big the, news. The big news, and the one that's going to take up most of our news segment is Dragonlance, the unearthed Arcana article. Heroes of Kryn dropped, and not only did it say Dragonlance, it said let's give you a new race and some subclasses and some feats and uh, yeah, a bunch of stuff. Yeah, and sometimes when you see these things, you're like, but are they really going to launch this world? Because it's just like a thing or two, right? And this is like the stuff you need to do a Dragonlance campaign. So it's a lot more of a reveal, right? Yeah, it it brings up so many questions that we could do several episodes just about Dragonlance. But we are going to just dig into the article in terms of what it presented in terms of the new playtest rules. Uh, so the designers on this were Ben Petrosor, Wesley Schneider, and Jeremy Crawford, cooking up some Dragonlance options. And you know, if you say races, what races could Dragonlance introduce? There's only one answer. Uh, that is the Kender. Gully Dwarf. Gully Dwarf. I wish. Uh, I, I no. wish. So, so Kender, uh, so you know, Kender, Kender have always been one of those polarizing aspects of D and D. Yeah, uh, in the sense that they are, you either love them or you you really really dislike them for reasons that we will discuss as we talk about the different it, aspects. And I think it goes as far. It's one of those that if like there are people who will say many people. If you like Kender, I like you less. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like to that level, right? Yeah. 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 Because it it it's not just a matter of preference that you know the Kender when they were first introduced. So this is going back in D and D history for a bit. When they first introduced, they became a very problematic race, um, and that's why you got such strong reactions to it. Because sometimes pe- people would use Kender to condone their own bad behavior at the table and if you got subjected to that and then heard someone else say oh i loved kender 
you would associate them with this problematic behavior and say, I don't want to play D&D with you. So we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. get into that in a second. So uh, you want to talk about the lore here for just a second? Yeah, the lore is interesting uh, because <laughs> the real lore is pretty silly. But, uh, well, the new real lore uh, basically just says native to Kryn. And then it says that their curiosity is connected to the whimsical nature of the Feywild. And that's not a plane that figures in Dragonlance's history at all. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of weird shoehorn kind of whatever. It, I, right. That one felt really strange to me. Yeah. Yeah. It Like you said, in, in the lore of Dragonlance, unless it happened in some of the later novels that I did not read, uh, it wasn't like, hey, Feywild uh, had any bearing on the no. setting whatsoever. And uh, they, they say, you know, Kenner tend to fall through portals and gates to other worlds, so you can find them elsewhere. Kind of, you know, multiverse type approach of you can find them wherever, any world. Um, and and I just, lore-wise, their origin story is one of those sort of weird things that, that gets revealed at some point. I forget if it was a novel, a source book, or what, but it's the idea that they uh, were gnomes <laughs> who became curious enough to look into something related to a god and this result in them being shaped into kender right which weirdly enough look like halflings in case anybody doesn't know they're like a halfling but they're like the dragonlance halfling and they have more curiosity and this whole thing about the pockets which we'll get into mm-hmm. um but you know so it's interesting that they they and i don't mind them not getting into that because any of that sort of weird you were a thing then you're turned into another thing mm-hmm. often doesn't feel particularly exciting yeah um but but they certainly don't have a Feywild link in the past, and it's interesting to see that. The other big change, which has seen a lot of discussion, is around theft. Because in the original, well, in the new thing, they say, uh, the, the Unearthed Arcana says, that they have a magical phenomenon where things appear in their pockets. And then it says, quote, this has led many kender to be mislabeled as thieves. Mm-hmm. And that's an enormous change because all of the Dragonlance lore uh, novels, source books, is that Kender basically just can't help but steal things. They appropriate the things around them and stuff them into the pockets when no one's looking, and then they go, oh, you're looking for your handkerchief. Well, I have this one. Do you want to use this one? And it's your handkerchief. Right. Yeah, and that that has been a true thing from the very first novel. Uh, mm-hmm. That is just what Kender, not just Tasselhoff Burfoot, the original, but all Kender do. And and so that is the thing where you would get a lot of problematic behavior, people thinking it it's cute, because in the novel it comes up in the novels it comes off as sort of it's not meant to be even theft. It's just they see something they like, they put it in their pocket, and taking it from someone obviously. And And in the novels, at times, it's sort of funny like that. And other times, it's super useful. So someone's like, you know, the the evil caster goes to cast their spell, and they don't have their component pouch because the kender stole it, right? It can be be advantageous even, but but it just happens indiscriminately. Right. And this is one of the many ways where something that's awesome in a work of fiction, whether it be a novel or a, a movie or a series, TV series, does not translate well to role playing games. Because it is a plot point, it, it is something that, if used carefully, can be, it can be used carefully to great effect, 
when used haphazardly, as you will see in 10 million people playing a role-playing game, yeah. it, it becomes a bludgeoned rather than a scalpel for fun stories. Uh, so how, how this lore figures that out is called Kender Ace, which we will uh, talk about in a second when we talk about the specific rules. So with that lore in mind, let's get delve into the game mechanics of the Kender. They are, as halflings are, small humanoids. Um, they have the Brave feature, which gives them advantage on saving throws to avoid or end the Frightened Condition. This is a change from past editions, as Teos will tell you. Yeah, they used to just be immune to fear. Um, and, uh, you know, on Twitter, designer Dan Dillon was sharing, well, you know, there are a couple times when you see Tasselhoff Burfoot uh, actually face fear. Uh, so he approaches the tire, Tower of High Sorcery and he sees a dragon. You know, there are like three examples or something where he goes, oh. But it's actually pretty terrible things. And it's it's a big deal in the novels. Um, so I can kind of go either way on, on what best represents Kender Kind. Um, fear is not the biggest thing in the game. So I, I'm not worked up either way about it. And, and I, you know, I think either way, it's a good nod and capture of the story mm-hmm. of what's been in previous editions of what we expect out of Kender. Um, I don't really have a problem personally with immunity. I don't know how you feel about it, but resistance is fine. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm not a big fan of immunity at like tier one and tier two. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's sort of the immovable object versus the irresistible force argument that you can say a first level character ha- has immunity to blank, poison, fear, uh, stunning, whatever. And then you have a godlike being doing it. Oh, so every dwarf is immune to poison. Just that I know that's not true, but as an example, even right. if like the god of poison is poisoning them. So I'm not a big fan of immunity at lower levels. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the idea that as you gain power in, you know, whatever abilities, uh, whatever classes, whatever subclasses, feats, whatever, that at higher levels you can get that. And so that's why I, I'm okay with it being just uh, disadvantage, the advantage on saving throws rather than yeah. on full immunity. And this has been problematic in the past. I mean, there would be things in adventures that would say, you know, a fear effect causes everyone to immediately run. And the Kender player would say, right, no. Or the Paladin would say, well, I, I don't. Right. And that would be a real big problem. You had to, as in various editions, you had to take that into consideration when designing yeah. things. Right. That this may not work for everybody in the party. And what do you do in that situation? So yep. this helps a bit. Right. I'm, I'm absolutely cool with that. And, you know, I, I also wouldn't hate seeing more race uh, species abilities that say at 11th level, you become mm-hmm. immune to fear. Yeah. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Something that it's not horribly complicated. It's not something that you need to keep track of level by level. It's just here you're resistant, and then you know at some point you you become yeah. immune. That's that's fine with me. Um, cool. The ne- the next mechanic is the Kender Ace that we mentioned earlier. So starting at third level, you can spend a bonus action to pull a random item out of a container that you carry. The item lasts for one hour. 
And you can do this a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, regaining the ability on a long rest. And then the, the chart is a D6 where you can get on a one, five to six gold pieces, on two, a simple weapon of your choice, three, an item of your choice from the adventure gear table, uh, four, a random item from the t- trinkets table, uh, five, your choice of a crowbar or a grappling hook, and six, one item of your choice from the tools table of the player's handbook that does not cost more than 10 gold pieces. Uh, so I, I don't hate this. I don't love it. Uh, I think it's it's just, I think it's an initial attempt to take away this problematic stealing mm-hmm. things ability by creating an ability that's sort of just random. Yeah. So you don't like the randomness? I don't love or hate the randomness. I to to be honest, I'm totally I I I just don't care about this. I <laughs> I, I just, you know, it's not useful enough to be useful. Mm-hmm. Uh maybe randomly it will be useful at some point. Uh yeah. but I I also don't want kind of running around stealing everything in sight. So I I get that it I I get that it needs to be something. This is such a D&D thing, right? Like there are times when people will say like, oh, other role-playing games do blah better or differently or whatever. And and sometimes you can't think of an example. And this is a perfect example of something that another role-playing game, most other role-playing games Mm -hmm. would not at all handle this way. They would say that you can pull something out that's useful. Mm -hmm. Right. And they would leave it at that. Yeah, And they might give some guidance, like it's generally under blah, gold cost, you know, whatever. But it would be, you know, up to the DM to just dream up what this is. And it would be Mm -hmm. something creative and imaginative and therefore applicable and useful. Right. Um, And you're right. This is kind of weird where just I look around my pockets and maybe I'm hoping for rope, but I get 30 gold pieces. And that's awesome. But I wanted a rope. Right. And... You know, then I want a tool, but I pull a trinket, you know, and so it's all very, wah, wah, but, but weird. And it only lasts an hour. Yeah. So that's always interesting and strange. Yeah. So I guess uh, yeah. the, if I get some number of gold pieces for an hour. Right. And then mm. what happens when you pull out an item? Oh, look, I have a grappling hook. I'm going to sell the grappling hook to this merchant. Uh, and then an hour later, it disappears. So really what I've yeah. done is is stolen money from a, a merchant. Um, yeah, or buy it with the coins that are going to fade. I'm guessing the right, exactly. only items fade. But um, the, uh, the other thing here is that starting at third level for something that's core to an ancestry, mm-hmm. waters down, you know, you can play two levels in a one shot and not enjoy this aspect of it, which is integral to your species. I don't right. know. Right. Yeah, I, I think your point there is is actually very good in terms of other games being more story-based and trusting the, the game masters and the players to coordinate could just say, you know, I, once per long rest, you can pull something useful from your pocket. Yeah, and let let the let the imagination of the table dictate what that is. The other thing is story wise, you know what what often happens in the novels and is expected of the adventures 
is your ability to sort of pocket a useful thing and then bring it out later in a surprise way. Mm-hmm. And that ability, that's something that I could see maybe kicking in at third level is sort of a, a storage, almost a bag of holding type scenario, you know, handy haversack, some kind of thing like that, where you could just sort of stow a thing surreptitiously, say advantage on sleight of hands. And it, it it's, you know, then can be basically magically supernaturally brought back at any right. point, but it's not on your, effectively not on your person because nobody would be able to find it, you know? Right. I don't know. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, I'm not a big proponent or fan of sort of the silly random table things. I, I mm-hmm. but I know from personal experience that lots and lots of players are, and yeah, I, just... I, I don't want to deny them their funny little, you know, <laughs> yeah. roll a die and and you know come up with something silly comes out and you can have a nice little laugh and and role playing mm-hmm. session around that, which is totally fine. I, I've been involved in many of those and I've enjoyed those, uh, but you know, to make it such a an important uh, factor. And have it not be something that would be really useful to the character uh, seems like and a, something a waste of might opportunity. Be, you might be doing it several times a day, and right. rolling on this table several times a day is not worthwhile, right? Like, yeah, when they last an hour, like this, it seems like a mismatch here. But that's why it's on Earth Arcana, right? Yeah. What do you think of Taunt? That's their taunt. last feature. Yeah, Taunt. So I assume this is also at third level. I uh, can't mm. remember off the top of my head. Let me scroll really quickly. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Yeah, I didn't write down the full whoop, wording of it. Whoop. Uh, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. And there we go. Subclass. Whoops. Taunt. Uh, it doesn't say. I assume it's going to be at third level, but it doesn't actually give a level in the description. So, so there you go. Theoretically, not be, but I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we'll assume at third level. Um, a bonus action to insult a creature within sixty feet, uh, unless the target succeeds on a saving throw, it has disadvantage on attack rolls until till the start of the Kender's next turn. Uh, it can use, and this can be used a proficiency bonus number of times regained on a long rest. So my first thought was, wow, uh, bonus action to give a creature disadvantage on all their attacks until you act again. So for a full round. Yeah. Uh, that several times a day. <laughs> could be several times a day because it's proficiency bonus. So he, here's, here's the problem with, with this and with many things that we discuss. D&D 5e has not yet decided whether it is a resource management game or a short workday storytelling game where you have one or two encounters and then get a long rest. Because if this is if if this is a, in a game that's a resource management game where you have 10 12 encounters before you get a long rest, I'm I'm actually okay with this. It's powerful, but I'm okay with it. If you are running Oh, we're we've, we're fully rested. We're going into the Dragon Slayer. Maybe we have a little skirmish outside the Dragon Slayer, and then boom, here we are at you know twelfth level against this big dragon. Okay, as a bonus action, I'm just going to repeatedly spam this ability every round. Maybe it makes it save. Maybe it wastes its legendary resistance. Uh, but if it does, when it does start to fail these checks, 
and it's a charisma save. So we have lots of monsters with very low charisma. Uh, mm-hmm. It it's multi attack, right? It's claw, claw, bite, tail. Yeah. It's uh, layer actions. <laughs> All of these things have disadvantage. Oh, and opportunity attacks where you try to run away also made it disadvantage. Uh, that's powerful. That's yeah. really really powerful. Yeah, and multiple times a day. There's a lot here that, that I think it makes it stronger. Right. And what I like is the concept. The concept is to try to capture the playful, irreverent nature of the Kender, which they are. They're, they're sort of, you know, wild and, and, and because they're fearless, you know, they'll go up to a dragon and yell at it and things like that. And um, and so some of that makes sense, but, but I don't know that not as a bonus action multiple times. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and obviously, you know, for some classes, a bonus action is important. If you're if you're a rogue, you know, your bonus action could be something that you use every round, so you do have to give something up. But there are other times when a class with a bonus action, you know, they have very few bonus actions that are really really useful, or that are would be given up easily to to do this. Uh, so yeah, how would you, how would you fix it? Well, you could say. It has disadvantaged the enemy on its first attack roll. Uh, would that would be reasonable? Or uh, if, make the taunt a reaction that would turn a hit into a reroll. That yeah. that makes it powerful, but not as powerful as as this. I like that. Yeah, I like that idea. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then you know, then again, like I said, if you have if you run a campaign where there are 13 encounters between rests i'm i'm totally cool with this uh it right it, it becomes less of an issue so uh the other thing yeah. is you could always have more than one kender in the party too and then <laughs> this is really true. outrageous yeah it would definitely become <laughs> your the dm's always rolling with disadvantage and and the problem again with disadvantage and we've talked about this i'm sure over the course of our mastering dungeons uh careers are combats are already long enough for the most part so you anything that gives disadvantage anything that cuts down on the amount of damage and the time it takes to get through an encounter the longer the encounters become and so if you're like me and you would prefer to have shorter combats and more combats you know over the course of an adventure then that's just lengthening things yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I think there's something for the Kender. You know, these are fun ideas, but I feel like these are this is where I'd like to see a version B of the Kender, mm-hmm. with a a new vision for taunt and a new vision for the items. Um, you can't say that they're not thieves and then go create temporary gold pieces. <laughs> you know, like yeah, it, it needs a little. And I, yeah, something that captures the concept of how they can come up with the right thing at the right time or someone else's thing in a way that's helpful. You know, something like that would be more fun. And I'd, I'd like to see a new right. a new attempt at it. And, and now's the time to do our great, uh, you know, our great warning that, you know, it's very easy to set and nick, nick, yeah. <laughs> nitpick these things. It's we very hard say to, I know, and it, but it's very hard to create them. And I think this is this is a fine first shot. This is a fine fine play test version to see how it works at the table and what people think. Uh, 
and yeah, most so, most movie critics don't make amazing movies. This is true. <laughs> so, so I don't know that I would do a ver- better Kender at all. Exactly. I'm sure I wouldn't. These are three very fine designers, yep. uh, but but this is yeah, it's just what we see, right? Yeah, and, and you know, it's it's a it's a first pass or you know a first public pass at it, and so you know I'll do credit to even come up with this. I could come up with things that are much much worse than this and think they're good. Yeah. So I just think the hours it would take me to think about what the three things that a Kender does should be. Right. right. Like. Exactly. That's, you know, that's like a week of work right there for me. Oh, so, gosh. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's get into the subclasses. The uh, first is uh, the sorcerer subclass Lunar Magic. And uh, yeah, it, what did you think of the lore? I think it's pretty cool. So the behind this, what it's trying to do that's important for non-Dragonlance people to know is that in the world of Dragonlance, there are three moons, one of which is not visible to anybody unless you are a super powerful certain type of wizard. Uh, and in the past, it was all wizards because the game lacked these things. And there's a sidebar in here that tells you at one point, like, hey, the game didn't used to have sorcerers and things like that in it so yep. we're, we're changing it that's why so mm-hmm. instead of wizards of high sorcery it's now the the mages of high sorcery and this is an attempt to explain a way that sorcerers can fit into that dragon lance mentality through lunar magic so i like everything of what is going all, all the goals like this is all excellent stuff to try to get you into dragon lance and and i liked basically in, in you know at a general level what it was trying to do around that so uh, mechanically, you get the following things. Uh, you get at first level Moonfire. What this means is you can cast Sacred Flame as a sorcerer cantrip that doesn't count against your known cantrips limit. Uh, and additionally, you can target two creatures with the Sacred Flame cantrip if they are within five feet of each other. I like the fact that sorcerers now if they take this subclass, have a radiant damage cantrip because they did not before. Mm. Uh, I don't know if doubling the target rider is necessary. I think just giving them a radiant option is is good. Uh, if you yeah, want it, it's strong. I it, so yeah. I actually um, played a game this weekend with someone who was trying this out for fun, mm. and um, they did a lot of dual sacred flaming because it, you know when two things are standing next to each other why not and right. i've played a death cleric which can uh do chill touch against two targets yeah, or some yeah. other necromantic thing against two targets yeah. um and and that it's certainly powerful um but it's not game breaking it's okay no. yeah. I, you just have to think of it as a strong feature right you're getting an extra cantrip and you in certain situations and it's going to vary some games nothing standing next to another right and other times it happens often right so it just yep. depends yep uh at first level you also get lunar embodiment so this is this is where it starts to get interesting and or complicated uh so at <laughs> at uh at first third fifth seventh and ninth you get additional spells and one of each of those spells falls into a category corresponding to a phase of the moon. So there's a list for full moon spells, 
there's a list for new moon spells, and there's a list for crescent moon spells. And you get all three of these added to your spell list. And and they're decent spells. They're not all super powerful, but you know, at first level, for example, full moon is fairy fire, new moon is dissonant whispers, and crescent moon is sanctuary. So those become sorcerer spells for you, and you can cast them as as you want. Now, uh, this will, and whenever you finish a long rest, you can choose which lunar phase you want to manifest with your magic. <laughs> okay. So, oh, okay, I finished a long rest. I'm going to be in my new moon phase. Rock and roll. This will impact things later. Uh, yeah. In, in addition to the choice of these spells. So it's, it's sort of, right. you know, you wake up you, you having made this moon choice, and now you have, you know, say if you're a fifth level caster, you have three spells available through this feature, and they are the particular f- spells that are under new moon, which are Dissonant right. Whispers, Darkness, Bestow Curse, because you're fifth and, level. Yeah, and so why, you'd, you'd have to keep track of that. Yeah, and why that's important is because now you can cast those spells once, uh, per long rest without using a spell slot. Yeah. Uh, so I think the idea is you ha- always have access to all three of those spells. It's just whatever phase of the moon that you choose, you get to cast one of those at each level for free. Did you read that? Did I read oh. that correctly or incorrectly? You learn additional spells when you reach a certain level. Each counts as a sorcerer spell for you but it doesn't count against the number of sorcerer spells you know. Ooh, that's powerful. Uh, yeah. I don't read anywhere where it says you can't t- take them if you don't choose that. Yeah, and it's not using the usual wording is that you get a free cast, and then it'll say, and you can normally use spell slots. And that's not in that paragraph, which would disassociate from the earlier piece. So I think you're right. I think I think what it's saying here is you actually learn all these spells. Right. Uh, which is strong. So now we have two strong things back to back. That's a lot yeah. of spells. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, hmm. so that's that's if I'm reading that correctly, you get those three extra spells at first, third, fifth, seventh, and ninth as as sorcerer spells, and you can cast one of them depending on the phase you choose uh, without using a spell slot. Boom. Mm-hmm. Okay. And whenever you take a long rest, you can choose a new phase. So that that's a lot of choices per long rest. Uh, to to were, it's it's an important choice. Yeah. Because at sixth level, you also now have your meta magic abilities influenced by the phase that you choose. Each phase of the moon is associated with two schools of magic. Full moon is abjuration, conjuration. New moon is evocation, necromancy, and crescent moon is divination and transmutation. So. When you use a metamagic uh, point on a spell from your school in your active phase, you can reduce the sorcery points that you have to spend to get that metamagic by one. So if it's a one-point metamagic ability, it becomes free. Yeah, it's interesting that they did not say minimum one. They said minimum zero. Right. Which I thought was, that's that's neat. that, That changes. That's also strong. Yeah, so you can do this a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. So, you know, by sixth level, your proficiency bonus is three. So you can do it three times per long rest without, you can, you know, twin your spell three times without even touching your 
uh, sorcery points. Yeah, and um, kind of two things I want to mention. One is that in, in the in the playtest that I was doing, it was fun to see the person who decided to try this class out. Mm -hmm. um, they uh, they were doing quick and spell on sacred flame because you know right. four attacks one round, right? It was really yeah. sweet. Um, one thing that's worth pointing out here, lore-wise, for people who don't know Dragonlance, is in addition to this earlier business that I said, there is a strong correlation between... Not, it, it is totally correlated. The moon and uh, alignment. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we will see in this document is the, the use of alignment in ways that we're not used to seeing in 5th edition. Like alignment is sort of watered down in the game from previous editions. And in Dragonlance, the, the wizards will wear robes that are color coded to these moon choices, uh, which are also these schools of thought. And they tend to link to this kind of idea of like, you know, necromancy, death, evil stuff is the black robes, uh, which here are being called new moon. Mm -hmm. And you, you end up being a certain type of mage by going down that path. Right. And you tend towards evil things, uh, self, self, um, yeah. selfish type of interest and things like that versus white is, you know, the typical kind of good approach concept that's associated to that life and healing and protection. And then the center neutrality is red, and that is all very trying to keep every those both sides together. And that's very Dragonlance-y. So they're doing this, you know, it's, a lot of this is clearly heavy, but it does a really nice job of trying to approximate that. Yeah, and it does a great job of then saying, not only is this a Dragonlance thing, but this could be in any game, mm -hmm. uh, thanks to the phases of the moon. Yeah. Uh, so good, good work on that. Uh, so at sixth level, you can also get waxing and waning. So as a bonus action, you can spend one sorcery point to change your lunar phase for a different one. And my first question was, okay, so I say I use a free spell casting for, you know, for something. Then when I change my phase, do I then get to redo all that? Uh, yeah, do I get another free casting? free, free casting? Uh, and it's also handy because if you are saving sorcery points by casting meta magic for free, then you do have more sorcery points around to change it to you know to do it. So if if you're in a game that's heavily into resource management and people are running out of spells, uh, that's an important you know part of your game. Then this is a possible way to let them cast more and more and more spell slots. And, and this is certainly complicated, you know, no doubt, but the sorcerer is generally a less complicated class. Mm -hmm. And so I like that there is a way to choose to make the class more complicated. Like I think mm -hmm. it's nice to have the, the variances of complexity, yeah. right? Some players will love playing just a sorcerer. These are my only spells and I do them a lot. And I do them over and over and every now and then I boost it with meta magic. And that's all I really worry about. Right. But someone can then add this to be tactical. True. Uh, and that comes into the next uh, feature, which is lunar empowerment at 14th level. Uh, when you choose a lunar phase, you gain the benefit associated. For full moon, it's you shed bright light in a 10-foot radius, dim for an additional 10. And then you and creatures of your choice have advantage on saving throws while in the bright light that you shed. So this is something that's always on. Yeah. Uh, new moon is you have advantage on dexterity stealth checks. And then while in dim or dark light or darkness, you, attack rolls against you have disadvantage. Uh, now, that's always true in darkness. But 
to while in dim light have all attack rolls against you have disadvantage that's pretty pretty interesting mm -hmm. and then for crescent moon is you have resistance to necrotic and radiant damage and so you know this is this is a pretty good strong 14th level thing where you get to choose at the end of your long rest which phase but because you can wax and wane oh i'm getting into a situation where I need, you know, we're going up against the vampire. Okay, I'm going to switch to <laughs> yeah. Crescent Moon at the cost of one sorcery point. And now I have resistance to necrotic damage. Uh, so that becomes, it's complicated, but it's very useful and utile is, I guess, the word that I'm looking for. Yeah, and it's another of these cases where you have three options and they're not the same, right? Like Full Moon, being able to give everybody within 10 feet advantage on saving throws, that is a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's way bigger than you having resistance to necrotic and radiant, which may or may not come up in an encounter. Right. Um, and similarly, that new moon with the advantage on, on or being always disadvantaged against you in dim light or darkness, whether someone could see in it or not, mm -hmm. um, that is really strong if you're going to use that often. Right. And, yeah, so. and so those are, those are, you know, the kind of things, these are not comparable. And, and, and I don't like that because it drives a particular phase choice and the phase choice should be based on your alignment storyline, whatever, not picking powers like this. And th so I got this, this, I don't super love. Yeah. And then uh, at 18th level, you get lunar phenomenon, which is as a bonus action, you can tap into the special power of your lunar phase. Uh, and so as part of the bonus action that you take to use your waxing and waning feature, uh, you can do the following. If you wax or wane into full moon, you radiate intense moonlight for a moment, and you can do 3d8 points of... Uh, or, wait, let me rephrase that. Each creature of your choice within 30 feet must make a con save or be blinded until the end of its next turn. Mm -hmm. And then one creature of your choice within the area regains 3d8 hit points. So that's full moon. New moon is you momentarily emanate gloom, each creature within 30 feet must succeed on a deck save or take 3d10 necrotic damage and have its speed reduced to 10 until the or to zero until the end of your, its next turn. In addition, you become invisible until the end of your next turn unless you make an attack or cast a spell. And for Crescent Moon, uh, you can slip through darkness. You can magically teleport to an unoccupied space you can see within 60 feet and you gain resistance to all damage until the start of your next turn. So that is something that happens when you use the waxing and waning bonus action. Mm -hmm. Though only you can't, you can use this bonus action once per long rest unless you spend five sorcery points. Right. That's at the end of that. Yep. So, um, but at, you know, how many sorcery points do you have at 18th level? Although it says a, once you use a phases bonus action. So I guess you could do all three by switching to different ones. I'm going to switch over here and oh, look at the exact so. wording. Huh. Um, I almost have this. This power has kind of made a draft guideline that I've just planted in my brain, which is a bonus action feature should probably not take up the time of an of a full action mm -hmm. design wise. And what I mean by that is that I, I, I like these flavor, these things flavor wise, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and Crescent Moon is fine. You know, that's a quick thing to just teleport. But the other two where there's damages and saving throws being rolled and things mm-hmm. being immobilized, that is the equivalent time suck of like a major spell. Right. And that's your bonus action, right? And that's why I said that thing about design-wise. Like, I feel like a bonus action shouldn't be an action worth of content yeah. and, and time usage. And, and that's what this is. And then you're going to do another thing on top of it. And that can be cool sometimes. So this is just, you know, once per long rest, maybe. But maybe it's three times per long rest. Each right. one once. I don't, you know, it gets a little, a little too much. A little heavy to eat that much time up in a game. Yeah. And... You know, and the it, game's already fun. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, it, it goes to, you know, how often do campaigns shut down around 12th, 13th, 14th level uh, because it gets so complicated and time-consuming to keep track of all the powers. That's why, you know, you say sorcerers are pretty simple to play and it's good to have options that are more complicated, which I totally agree with. Uh, but then how complicated is too complicated? When you're doing this 18th level stuff and you you do the waxing and waning and then you get the magical feature from the lunar empowerment, but then you can also do the thing <laughs> from lunar phenomenon. And yeah. that's just a bonus action. Like you mm-hmm. said, let's not even, you know, get into actually doing your 18th level spell action at that point. It's it's a different game than it is at low levels, which could be good or it could be bad depending on your your desires yeah let's uh let's keep an eye on this sort of stuff because it it is you know we 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 talked about this back in tasha's like you get more and more of this and and it can be tough um i generally like what's going on with this uh source free class subclass um because i think that it probably appeals to the right person who wants complexity and wants to manage these things. And the person who doesn't will probably not choose it. Though I'm a little worried that because this is such a Dragonlance-y thing, you would feel like you'd have to take this if you played Dragonlance, mm-hmm. if you played a sorcerer in Dragonlance. And then you're forcing that kind of complexity on, on everybody in that setting. Yeah. So it probably I, I would probably want to see it shaved down and simplified, though I like having... I, I like for some people to be able to have the complexity they want, right? Sure, yeah. And they're going to run it well. Yeah. Right. That's it's you know it's a different game to different people and that's why, even though we might say too complex, somebody might say this is exactly what I've always wanted. And speaking and that's okay. of different game, what if we totally changed our backgrounds, our design, Sean? Oh my god! You know what? I'm going to make an executive decision here. Okay. Uh, because this is a big, big bit of news. Mm-hmm. Next week, let's talk about backgrounds. And normally okay. we would just say, "Hey, it's just a background. Let's just." No, these aren't just <laughs> backgrounds, uh, which we will discuss next week. And that bleeds into the feats that are presented uh, yeah. here, which, you know, that these in themselves, I think, are going to take a full half hour to, uh, true. To, to go through. And I do want to get into our main topic, which is updating old adventures. Uh, so shall we shelve the rest of it for next time? Do you want to quickly hit on the news? I mean, the other news, I think we can do it quickly. Yeah, sure. Uh, So let's talk about ICV2 quarter four news. Uh, ICV2 interviews a selection of hobby game stores and distributors and asks them to give some figures on the top games sold for that quarter. So for the final quarter of 2021, not surprisingly, D&D was number one. 
Uh, number two, as a bit of a surprise, Pathfinder has moved back into the number two uh, seat after dropping out. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's a little bit of hope there. We, it didn't say whether it was Pathfinder first edition or second edition, but <laughs> or both or both combined. Right. Because in third are the Goodman Games 5e D&D products. So, right. So a, a super interesting. Yeah, a subsection of 5e D&D is, you know, third after D&D being first. Um, and then number four. <laughs> yeah, four is Fallout from Modifius based on the video game Fallout, which, you know, if, to be honest, if you had said, is there a Fallout RPG? I would have said probably, but I have no idea. No. I, I would have guessed like Modifius was making it because they make half of the games uh either that or free league i would have said uh you know worked on it and coming in fifth is call of cthulhu which is interesting because based on roll 20 right. it's the second most popular role-playing game played on roll 20 if i recall the last time correctly and this may not be 100 percent correct but it's roughly you know if not it's closer to correct than wrong i think it was D call of cthulhu Pathfinder, Alien, I think was sort of what it was before. Right, I think so. Something like that. And so th there's been some shuffling here, uh, at least through the hobby game store distributor level. And, and things like Fallout, I mean, that's the kind of thing that when people go to a store and they, oh, I like that video game. Let me pick this up. Right. You can get those kinds of jumps, right? And I don't sure. suspect we'll see it next time. Yep. Uh, the Some good news is that the hobby stores reported that their sales were up 30% in 2021 as more people return to the physical stores from uh, the pandemic isolation. And according to their analysis, the ICV2 analysis, that 90% or more of tabletop role-playing game groups were playing D&D uh, based on distributors. And distributors are also saying that they're seeing that this increase is great for D&D, obviously, but it is also equating into more sales for the smaller role-playing game publishers. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's hopefully that is a trend that we will see continue. Um, Free League, the alien RPG will tie into the official novels. You want to tell take us through this? Yeah. So Free League and Titan Books announced they're working together to publish a unified storyline within the alien universe. And I thought this was really interesting because it, it goes pretty deep and, and, I don't know that we've seen something like this where books that are from one company are being dovetailed with role-playing games. And so through 2023, they're doing this. The two companies are collaborating on plot lines. Um, there are these three novels coming out. There are going to be three adventures to go with them, being written by Andrew Gaska, who we met at GameholeCon and has written most of the previous Aliens adventures. Um, you can see him DMing a stream that I was in if you go to alphastream.org. Um, and this is cool. If you pre-order the first novel, you also get the adventure, mm -hmm. which I thought, well, that's great. A whole bunch of people who are going to like read the novels are going to yeah. get this thing and go, oh, wow, I could actually play in this world. What is a role-playing game? That's awesome. Yeah, th that is awesome. And speaking from experience, this takes a lot of coordination. Um, I, I've done this twice for Wizards. Uh, once for the, I can't remember... They were both Forgotten Realms novels. Uh, one was for the Weekend in the Realms, 4E, Living uh, Forgotten Realms thing. And yeah. then one was for another novel. 
And so I like read the novel. They sent it to me right before it was published. <laughs> I read it. And then I wrote an adventure of, with, you know, tied to the plot without actually bringing the main characters into mm-hmm. it. And, you know, it, it took a lot of coordination and you know, it, it, even, even with all the work we put in, it wasn't perfectly executed. Um, yeah, it's hard. So I, totally I, hard. I love to see this sort of cross promotion and hopefully getting, you know, people who play role-playing games to get into the fiction, getting people into the fiction, into the role-playing game. It's, it's yeah, good if, when it works. So hopefully we'll, we'll see how that works. Yeah, well, how about uh, our last bit? No, next to last. Roll20 is hiring content conversion contractors. Mm-hmm. So they are basically hiring people for short-term gigs, part-time work, who will help get content moved into the Roll20 format so that it can be available to people online. Yeah. And this pays $15 per hour for 30 to 35 hours a week. And they say, if your rate is higher, please don't be afraid to share. A higher rate will not disqualify you from consideration. This is another example of Roll20 just killing it on mm-hmm. good job write-ups. Like, that's yeah. really excellent. Yeah. You know, if your work is good enough, uh, tell us, right? You know, tell us what you think is fair. Um, and they review contractors every 90 days for renew- renewal. So if you're too expensive and it's not worth it, they can drop you after 90 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not doing the work, they can drop you. But if you're doing a great job, then you're going to get renewed and, and keep doing this kind yeah, of work. Possibly a raise uh, if you're doing right. good work. So um, there's yes. a link to that in our show notes. It's an enormously long link to the Google Doc <laughs> but, right. where you can submit your application. Yeah, I had a one of my former students from, from last year ask if I could be a reference uh, because they were applying. And I'm like, I absolutely will be a reference for you. And I think that this is a great, uh, you know, great opportunity for people to, to take the skills that they've learned, whether it's, you know, programming or, or through role-playing game or running your own uh, role 20 games and doing it yourself. Here's a, here's a chance to uh, contribute to the industry and make a little money doing so. So good luck to the people that have applied to that. And our last bit of news is happy 16th birthday, Cobalt Press. Uh, to celebrate their 16 years, they are offering 20% off at their Cobalt Press store at the coboldpress.com website. Uh, I've done quite a bit of work for Cobalt Press over the years. It's always a great experience working with Wolfgang and with Steve Winter and with you know, Megan Markle and uh, Ben McFarland uh, does, yeah. does a lot of their playtesting. Uh, work so you know congratulations everybody there keep up the good work and uh, happy birthday yeah that's excellent 16 years is no joke in this industry that's that's really yeah. an accomplishment it is and uh, i have already made use of the 20 percent off on their web store so nice. i did my part <laughs> good job so in our extended series of updating old adventures and discussing them we have covered the village of hamlet we have covered pharaoh now we are going to cover N1 Against the Cult of the Reptile God. So this was published in 1982. So three years after The Village of Hamlet came out, the same year that Pharaoh came out, this was the first adventure in a series that was given the letter designation N, meaning that they were supposed to be written for novice DMs and players. So one of the first things I thought of, well, let's check and see if it fulfills its promise Mm -hmm. as being written for novice players. Uh, 
overall, I love what this adventure does because it breaks a certain trope in a grand way. We rarely saw adventures that were set in civilized areas. It was mostly wander off to this dungeon out in the middle of right. nowhere. And sometimes you would get a, a town that was involved with it or a small keep, like keep on the borderlands. Uh, this is one of the first adventures where what was happening in the town was a big part of the challenge of the adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, I love this so much that when I wrote a mashup of three adventures for D and D encounters for the transition to D and D next, uh, I chose it along with the Village of Hamlet and Keep on the Borderlands as one of the three to mash together in against the Cult of Chaos. Uh, so I, this was the first adventure I ever played where I had a character die <laughs> and they died in town of all places. I'm very sorry. Yeah. But <laughs> sure. it, it, no, but it, it was, it was, you know, it was interesting. It, I wasn't upset about it. I was like, oh yeah, I see what I did wrong here because I assumed <laughs> that I would be safe in the village and guess what? <laughs> I wasn't. Yeah, we should say there there it's impossible to avoid spoilers mm -hmm. for this adventure because it involves a sort of mystery angle to it. Oh yeah. And so if you at all want to play this 1982 adventure, uh we're about to spoil it uh and give away its secrets because it's impossible to not do so and, and, and dissect yep. it. So, However, yeah. if you're a DM and your players don't listen to this show, here is here is a fun adventure that you can you can you will have to do some work on it as we're going to talk about, but uh it's it's really it can be a very fun adventure but let's and I first think it's another uh, example of for its time mm -hmm. being really well done um yeah. this is written by douglas niles yes. who is an author um you know he wrote the the moonshade first forgotten realms uh, uh nice. novels and, yeah. and and he he does a very good job of wordsmithing and and conceptualizing like the concept of what's going on is really cool and is something that hadn't really been done uh, in this way before so it's a it's a really neat experience and i think the nature of the experience is one that feels modern enough that you want to sharpen it and, and fine-tune it because it's a neat idea yeah now so let's talk for a minute just about some of the overarching problems with the with the adventure mm -hmm. um, not necessarily anything to do with you know what it is but more like what it is based on what it was at the time yeah so at the time it was typical of for its kind but now you know we've evolved as a species a bit and uh we can we can do a little better uh, using safety tools will help with some of the problems we're about to talk about uh, for example mind control and the loss of free will is a big part of this adventure not only you know do many of the npcs uh have this they they were essentially charmed permanently and so they are not acting of their own free will if that's a problem for you or your players, it's it's the crux of the adventure. So you're just going to want to avoid it. Uh, and, and can I add to that? Yeah. The adventure <clears throat> tells the DM about this control. Right. But doesn't do anything about it. And, and so what happens is they're charmed. If When you win, if you win, the charm will end. Right. You may have murderized a lot of people not realizing they're charmed because there's yeah. nothing that really gives that away. And that's a sort of dark thing that the adventure never, never addresses. Yeah. Yep. So, so there's a lot of, of that sort of thing. Um, and it's a product of its time of 1982. So you get a lot of, 
you know, the farmer's a man and he's got all these kids. Oh, and then and there's a wife, right? So a lot of the leaders of the town are male. Uh, and she then, sees the party coming. She runs away scared and gets the right, husband. You know, right, exactly. Th- those sorts of things. Easily fixed by just, you know, you doing whatever you want uh, with with the, the gender of the characters, of the NPCs, uh, you know, switch things around to whatever degree that you want and everything flows fine. Uh, there's a problem a little bit with the plot and the flow of the adventure because there's this cult and these characters these npcs have been uh have been charmed and they really the cult doesn't have any plans any larger plans other than make more cultists so it's like the cultists go out and all they do is kidnap other people and take them to be charmed uh, by the big bad enemy at the end and then they they come come back to town and act a little different but for the most part not so it's it's not there there's not this big plot that's placed right in front of everyone that's easy to sort of gauge. Uh so you might want to give it a little bit of a hook. Uh mostly the hook is there are rumors that this strange thing is going on in this town. You should but go investigate. We don't know what right. We people don't are know leaving what. or going missing, maybe, but yeah. right. And and they yeah, it's like people are leaving. Farmers are leaving their their crops in the field. People have left their meals right on the table. And then some of them come back two weeks later and don't really have any good explanation of where they were. So it's, it's a very, it's, it's definitely a plot, but there may need to be a little bit more motivation. That motivation could be as simple as somebody in the next town over their cousin was traveling through there and their cousin disappeared. Go find them. Uh, That, pushes things along a little bit better and yeah. giving the cult maybe a little more agency in terms of trying to do something other than just kidnap everyone might be useful, but we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, when, when you don't have a good plot push uh, hook, the whole, you just go investigate the town. It, doesn't give players a good direction. Sort of the sandbox idea, but you're leaving the the agency to the players who might want a little direction. Yeah, it uh, feels, yeah. It's sort of like the thing we talked about with Hamlet, where you arrive at Hamlet and you're like, "What do I do?" Right. You know, and the, but this adds the unique twist that every house you visit, they're probably frightened of you. Right. Uh, and, and behaving strangely because they're frightened of everybody. And there's, there's a fun thing here, which is that there are cultists who have been, you know, the mind-controlled cultists. And then there are normal people who are have a, avoided this fate so far. Um, and what happens is that often the people who are actually not cultists are very paranoid and suspicious of you and off-putting. Mm-hmm. And the ones that may be a little friendlier, not always, but sometimes are the cultists who are right. trying to figure out what you're what you're up to right. and want you to leave or yep. to murder you or want to kidnap you, not necessarily murder you, but kidnap <laughs> you kidnap and you. bring you to uh, their their reptile god. So, yeah, it's it's a fun concept that can be hard to to adjudicate for new DMs. So, you know, saying this is for novice game masters. 
it's it's a tough challenge even for experienced game masters to do all of this role playing as the characters go from house to house and business to business in the town and every you're trying to role play all these different npcs and do so in a way that doesn't give away the whole story right away uh which sometimes these investigation uh adventures do it's like we just go from one the players just go from one place to the next and to the next until they find the answer and they yeah. they sort of wear down your role-playing will to to keep going and finally you're just like okay i give up there's a cult <laughs> so yeah. and you, boy you, the amount of gold and platinum that uh-huh. these villagers have at first level for first level basements and... yeah yep yeah. But I, on the positive side, the, the the town part just is full of really kind of for its time interesting and neat ideas. Like there are two elves who will act, you know, very sort of suspicious of you, uh, but they actually were hired by the mayor to look into the suspicious things as well. Right. And they've accumulated a number of pieces of information. And if you befriend them and prove to them that you're on their side, if they see you do, doing courageous things and so on, then they will disclose what they know and. And there are a number of places like that that sort of, uh, if you do things, then you can get more and, yeah. and gain people's trust. Um, there's the good in and the bad in, right? right? So one of the ends is taken over. And so you can you can get ambushed there. And, and one of the things that makes this adventure very different is it has a whole section of what the cultists do mm-hmm. based on the characters and, and in what order. And that's that was very unique for its time. Yep. Uh, not only that, they it's one of the first adventures I've seen that give actual round-by-round round tactics for certain combats to help the, the game master run it uh, in the, the most uh, powerful way possible based on what the NPCs or the monsters can do. And in, in more than one occasion, this happens. Um, and as Teo said, there's a section called Cult Activity as Time Passes, which sort of helps the game master see the way that the cultists will act based on what the characters do. Um, yeah, and I think that piece, if, if it had a little more of uh, situations that helped route players, right? Mm-hmm. That's where that's where that could be modernized a bit is, yeah. is, you know, what's going on when you come to town that creates a sort of hook and an interest and gets you going? And then you could have woven into this cult activity piece also things that, that you know, get yeah. the party involved and going and pointed in the right direction. Yeah. Catches up, catches them up if somehow they miss things, that kind of thing. One thing that you can tell that wasn't uh, sort of concretized in this era that is now is the the thought of encounters and moving from encounter to encounter. Uh, Because that's what a, a section for new DMs would do now. It would say, here are different encounters that you can place in as things change. You know, the characters are approached by blank and either they attack or they're given information or they're told to to go to this other place. Uh, And that's what game masters and DMs need is when things are um, not going off the rails, but when things are starting to wander, when things are starting to meander, how to bring everything back and get the plot flowing again in a direction that is pleasing to the players. And yeah, that's the sort of information that we need. Um, and there's and a little the, bit of danger that if if you could really go wildly off the rails, if the party sort of reaches one of these cultist situations and ends up in a battle, 
and then of course finds all this treasure under the cupboards or wherever they happen to you know under the mattress wherever they hide it and then concludes oh everybody in this town is evil <laughs> let's yeah. decimate the town um there can be some things like that that would be problematic and so the, there's some things here that i think it, it's not new dm friendly and that it doesn't address those kinds of situations that were very common back then and can still take place i mean yeah. if i were running say middle schoolers who already want to tear apart a town because mm -hmm. they can Woo, right. agency yeah. and you give them this kind of premise that's a real real issue you got to watch out for it's true so the adventure flow is is mostly as written players come to town they start investigating they start questioning things um, they may learn a thing or two but the real information is sort of held in three or four discrete areas. The mayor, uh, like the sheriff is a cultist. A lot of the important people in town are, are cultists, uh, but the elves know. And there's also this hermit who is a wizard who lives on the outskirts of town, who at some points will be blamed for the disappearances and then later is found to be, you know, investigating and actually preparing to try to put an end to the problem. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of that mystery uh, investigation, picking of clues. And then at some point, the characters will be targeted for kidnapping. Hopefully, if you're the bad guys, you as the DM are also the bad guys. When they split up or are apart from each other, they there will be a kidnapping attempt. Mm -hmm. Once that happens, then everything starts to pick up pretty quickly. You learn not only who the cultists are, but where their quote unquote reptile God is or how to track people to the reptile God. Then you go off to the dungeon portion of the uh, show. Although the temple and the golden grain Inn are two cultist locations that are sort of mini dungeons. Um, and you can send characters through there as a prelude to, uh, to that final the finale. Yeah. yeah. And I like, I, this is where that whole, you know, novice thing, there are a number of things that let you get your feet in by not being too long in experience, which is nice for, for mm -hmm. new DMs. You know, you run a, a short dungeon and okay, you feel like you, you got that down and you run another and, yeah. you know, so that's, that's fun. Um, and these dungeons are full of very classic things, right? Mm -hmm. There's the green slime that I always love from yeah. that era. Um, there are the harpy. classic, What's that? The harpy. There's a harpy. Yeah, harpy is, is t I remember how tough those harpies were when I played this. Mm -hmm. um, and and just neat, yeah, classic monsters, classic experiences. Um, a lot that's very fun here. And, and, and yeah, we had a blast running all these various little encounters. And, and it can be fun, the whole, you know, okay, once you start figuring it out and you're going, all right, well, let's go to this particular building. Are these people cultists <laughs> right <laughs> that that can be a lot of fun for the dm too yeah yep so if you're if you're going to run this where there's sort of a break in the investigation or you want to add some some you know non-investigation non-role-playing parts during that you can add some red herrings and side quests and i think that would be for, especially for fifth edition and for our new uh, you know, our new way of playing would be good. Uh, for example, there are goblins that have been uh, charmed that work for the Naga. 
So the Naga is the big bad guy. I don't think we've said that yet. Um, <laughs> so, you know, maybe people are blaming the goblins for this disappearance. And they say the goblins live, that clan lives out here, you know, up two days ride north of the, of the town. Go investigate that. That stops the characters from making a beeline straight for the answer by just, we're going to investigate every building in town in one day. That sends them out, uh, gives them something else to do. And then when they come back, they need to rest. And then you can have them uh, maybe split up. If they, Oh, we each have a separate room. Excellent. Oh, we're going to uh, have a kidnapping attempt. Yeah. So, like so that. yeah, that's something that you can do. It doesn't take a lot. Uh, this is an adventure for first to third level characters. Although at, during first edition days, you had to actually find someone to train you to go up a level. And they say, or uh, the, the text says, there is no one who can train anyone in this town. So if they're going to level, they need to leave to go to one of the, <laughs> a, a larger city. So if you do, unless, you know, if you leave, then there's more kidnappings, there's more problems. Uh, so otherwise you're having to do this all as a first level character, which is absolutely brutal based on what, uh, what comes later. And what comes later is a spirit Naga. And, and, and yeah, go ahead. Can I just say that? So one of the interesting things, this another interesting thing this adventure does is it creates that hermit NPC you talked about, right? And that hermit NPC is sort of supposed to be the most logical way, most straightforward way that the party will know where the cult of the reptile god is located mm -hmm. because the hermit knows where. And the hermit is a powerful wizard who has the spells, dispel magic and... Um, global invulnerability. Global invulnerability. Yeah. And the whole idea is that these will be very important in the final encounter, mm -hmm. which is a bit of a supposition that any of this is going to pan out. Yeah. So it has a, a funny kind of contingency that it says, though not perfectly. I mean, I think it should really be transparent as to what it's trying to do. Yeah. Uh, because it does say, like, well, maybe you don't want it to company. Oh, it'll send its familiar. And right. then there's a part before you get to the dungeon where it says, if the wizard's not there, they should find a scroll tube containing these spells, which presumes that someone can cast those and yep. will cast them at the right moment. But And then when you get to the final battle, it says the wizard feeling that the you know evil must be up ahead will cast minor glove of, of, of a vulnerability but not tell them he just tells them stay close to me mm -hmm. and the first thing the naga does is launch a fireball at you yeah and so if you didn't pick up on that or <laughs> you did you used the globe earlier or didn't use it well that's gonna go a certain way right yeah, a first level character getting hit by a fireball is, <laughs> uh, even if you make your save, pretty much certain death yeah, uh, yeah. in first edition. Oh, yeah. So, so it presumes that the wizard is with you uh, or that you have the means to cast those spells that will protect you from the fireballs and all of the other badness that the Naga can release on you. Uh, so it's one of those situations where the monster is much tougher than anything you could be able to handle normally. So these contingencies in place will take away most of those uh, advantages to let you hit a wizard uh, with uh, physical spell or physical attacks, and the wizard can really only do physical attacks back, not any of the magic that it uh, that it has. 
This is where I would tend to go the movie route and say, the wizard could come or not. You know, that's fine. You could make the wizard yeah. sidekick character or something like that. That's all fun. Um, but give the wizard, rather than making them a high-level caster that has global vulnerability, give them a magical amulet that yep. is a one-shot thing that eats up fire or whatever it is the spell you're trying to counter, mm -hmm. right? And and that will protect them from that. Yep. And that'll be the, the you know, it'll make that that NPC shine for a moment. Yeah. And it's it's very cinematic in its delivery because in this final encounter, you're on a boat in this underground sort of lake and you can't, you know that something's around the corner. So you push the boat, row the boat around this corner. And that's where the Naga is on this ledge and just hits you with this fireball while you're on this boat in the middle of the water. So you're like, well, I jump out of the boat. I'm safe under the water, except for all the creatures that are protecting the Naga from the water you know, all the alligators and the snakes and the, the reptile lizardy things. Uh, so it's it's not any safer in the water. Uh, it's it's a very tough encounter. There were was many a TPK uh, in in this adventure from that because the wizard wasn't there and the DM didn't realize. Oh, yeah, that's why the wizard was there to protect them from this auto kill spell. And we have to mention that the Naga is called Explicita Defilus. <laughs> yes, one of the best. Uh, Naga names that you will ever yeah. hear. Uh, so we we did a very quick, brief skim of this adventure, and you know it's it's a first of its kind in terms of making that role playing uh, with the cultists be something that's very important. It does a good job of helping the the a new DM deal with it not as much as it could have but much more than any adventure did i think before that so in that sense it's it's ahead of its time so if you're going to run this as a one shot how do you do that well i think you handle it this way uh send the characters into the so when we say one shot we're saying like a, you know four or five hour adventure yeah. uh Send the characters into the adventure with a solid lead and a contact in the town, which is called Orlane. When they visit the contact, they are attacked by cultists right away. The cultists have some clues on them that lead them either to the Golden Grain Inn or the Temple of America. Uh, both of these places are run by cultists. Dealing with the cultists at those places then leads to either through role-playing or through a combat to the location in the Rushmore swamp area of where this uh, reptile god Naga is located. Then cut down on the dungeon, make it a single level with the important locations that are there. There's a, a, a cleric who is making undead creatures for the Naga, run that encounter. Uh, maybe run a place where the prisoners who did not succumb to the charm are being held before they are fed to reptiles, let them be saved. Um, you know, get those three or four really important locations in, and then uh, and then you can do it in four or five hours. I like that a lot. And can I just say here two things? One is there's some beautiful design here around things. So, for example, the undead are being used to operate pumps mm -hmm. to get the excess water. This is almost like a beaver dam type situation. And so, the, the, in fact, one of the things that the characters can think about doing is releasing this dam 
which will then flood the whole area. But the wizard will tell you, well, first we need to figure out and there could be innocence down below and stuff. But it's something you can do to like afterwards make sure that the evil does not return and to finish off anything that might be below. But then you have this explanation for how it all works. You go, well, doesn't the water still like run, you know, seep in there? And well, yeah, but we've got zombies that are yeah. pumping it out. It's yep. just beautiful. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. That does give an opportunity for the characters to do something big and epic. And then after they defeat the Naga, you know, and the control of all of these people is lost, including the undead, Mm-hmm. Then the pumps stop working and the place starts flooding. You can have a nice skill challenge of leading the True. the prisoners out and how do you do it? And oh, there's water gushing in through this hole. How do you fix that? Uh, you can that's do some cool. things. Yeah, like that's that. a great idea. I like and, that. And then how would we turn it into a short campaign? Well, here's how I would do it. We talked about some of this specifically. In session one, set for me, session one would be all about getting to Orlane. Because Orlane is in an interesting location. It's between the Rushmoors, which is a swamp, and the Dim Forest, which is a mystical forest that contains a lot of danger. Mm-hmm. So if an NPC says, hey, you know, somebody I know disappeared somewhere between these two towns, it's a very dangerous area, and there's a town called Orlane right in the middle. Maybe you should start there and see if they came through. So that would send the characters to Orlane without all of this baggage. It would just be like, hey, it's a town. It's Orlane. Somebody disappeared somewhere around here. Start asking questions. That takes away that urge to investigate every single location because you know that there are cultists there. Uh, So then have some exploration encounters and some combat encounters showing the threats of the Rushmores. Have a couple crocodiles come out of the Rushmores. Have some strange monstrosities come out of the dim forest and then on the outskirts of orlane have the the characters run into a farming family that you know they're bringing in their crops and the farm that's across the road from them they just left with all their crops in the field waiting to be harvested oh could you help us bring in the corn could you help us Mm, bring bring in the squash whatever uh because it's going to rot in the field if we don't that gives the character something different to do uh, and learn about more about the disappearances right away. And you can get them the second level after just one session so they can yeah. better handle the challenges that await. And it's worth saying that this adventure is full of nice touches where things are described to you, like the history of the area, yep. the history of the people, that these are sturdy people that are not frightened by you know, scaly creatures coming out of the swamp. Like instead they form a militia and work together to face against them. And so uh, that kind of thing, what you're describing is an opportunity where you can help the players learn that and then appreciate the people of Orlane more. Mm -hmm. Then uh, session two, you get to Orlane. What's the first thing you do? Well, let's get some lodging. Let's gather some information. Let's see if this person we're searching for has been seen here. And, you know, maybe they, they did stay at the Golden Grain Inn. Uh, but then, oh, they left town. Yeah, we're pretty sure they left town, say the people that kidnapped them. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe the goblins that I mentioned earlier come and attack the town. People say, well, you know, there's goblins out there. They usually don't come this close to town, but things are strange, so that's why. Maybe some troglodytes come up from the, the south and attack. 
because they live in the swamp and they serve the reptile god. Uh, that gives you something to take the focus off the investigation after you let them investigate for a while. Um, then they can start mm-hmm. gathering information. And you have a couple of these red herrings, the goblins, the troglodytes coming from different directions. Uh, you know, so you, you're getting the role-playing information. You're breaking it up with some combat. Uh, and then at the very end of the session, the cultists realize, okay, these people aren't leaving. They're going to be a problem. So let's send some assassins. <laughs> and uh, you know, the assassins might have a clue on them that the characters can find later leading them to the golden grain inn or to the temple and then also maybe to one of the locations where innocent people uh are just to just to give that red herring um, yeah one other thing yeah. and then at the end of that session okay you're level three now you're at a level where you can take a little bit more damage where you have a few more abilities uh at the end of se- uh, at the beginning of session three i would send the characters completely out of the town again uh, oh, the goblins! We've they've seen more goblins. Maybe even an, an ogre there. Let's uh, let's. Could you please go out and check that out? Maybe that's where. Maybe they've been capturing the people. Have a whole session where they fight through the dim forest goblin lair. Maybe a powerful figure leads the goblins. Whether it's like an ogre mage, a powerful goblin, even a like a small shadow dragon, because dim forest is popular with uh, yeah. the shadow dragon crew. Uh, <laughs> And so when they get there, the goblins are like, why are you, you're kidnapping our goblins. We're disappearing like crazy. We thought it was you. And you thought it was us. It's not, (laughs) it's not us. Right. Uh, Then uh, at the end of that session, you're like, okay, so this wasn't what happened. Let's go back to Orlane with this information. Maybe the goblins have some other clues that, Oh, well, it's coming from actually south. It's coming from the swamp. Okay. Mm-hmm. Session four then lets the characters follow up on that information, gets them into the inn, gets them into the temple where more and more uh, clues will point to that there is this growing cult and uh, then meet the hermit. Now you've run four sessions. You've had two sessions at level three. So let's go up to level four. Sessions five and six can be, boom, we we know where we're going. Off we go to the swamp. We track, uh, do some exploration of the swamp to find the lair. Sessions yeah. five and six are the start of the lair, the exploration, uh, and the finishing of the lair. That's, yeah, that's how great. I would run it. Yeah, I like it. And you you mentioned it here, you know, all these these names and words and and that are you know, these proper places, <laughs> proper nouns, um, because this is all set in the world of Greyhawk, and it's one of the better adventures yeah. at bringing out the flavor of Greyhawk. So if you're interested in sort of seeing some of Greyhawk uh, as a setting, this gives you a feel for that with Orlane and Hawkock, and 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 it all ties together. And having been in the Living Greyhawk campaign, Sean as an admin. Um, it's a delight to read all these things. It brings back yeah. all these memories of all of these places in Keeland yeah. and Grand March and Jeff and, and yeah. all the lore that, that is in here is really great. Yeah. I mean, the, the like we said, the dim forest and the Rushmores, you could run whole campaigns just set in those areas yeah. based on the lore of those areas. So if you were going to continue after session six, where you finish this adventure, you'd be about fifth level. And then you could delve in and say, okay, what's going on in the Rushmores or the dim forest. 
the the shadow dragon is actually the the spawn of a larger shadow dragon that has its own uh, agenda and you can do some cool stuff in the dim forest with all the magic that takes place there and ghost of salt marsh is in keelan which is very mm -hmm. close to this location as well so yep. that you could you could easily do this either before or after depending on on your preference uh mm -hmm. to tie into those adventures so that was a quick and dirty version of N1 against the cult of the reptile god. Uh, and uh, did you have anything else to add before we? No, it's a really good adventure. Up? I felt like uh, the more I, every time I read N1, I like it more than I did before. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm actually really impressed with its design and what it does to bring classic concepts together. Yep. Um, yeah, it's really, really solid. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Teos, for sharing uh, your experiences and thoughts with me. And thank you to our listeners for uh, putting up with our whatever <laughs> this is that we're doing. Whatever, whatever you call this. Whatever you call this. Uh, and thank you specifically to our patrons who uh, help us out by giving us a few, a few bucks a month. Uh, if you would like to become a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, where can people find your expert analysis of all things role-playing games? Ooh, find something resembling that at alphastream.org. Uh, this week, I will continue what I did last week, which is to, um, I did a stream where I looked at uh, the Dwarven Forge free adventures we mentioned on the previous show. And so I'm going to continue doing that, looking at how you weave um, the Dwarven Forge adventure Dungeon of Doom into Tomb of Annihilation. Nice. Uh, so that's at alphastream.org. I'm on Twitter at alphastream. Where can we find you, Sean? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Uh, you can follow the podcast Twitter at Mastering d, d You can also leave comments on the YouTube channel where this show mm -hmm. is hosted. And you may not know this, but I do another podcast. I am stepping out on Teos by doing a podcast with some of my Ghostfire gaming folks. Uh, that podcast is called the Eldritch Lorecast, and it generally uh, runs weekly. And I do it with Ben Byrne, Dale Kingsmill, and Joey Hake, James Hake. So uh, you can check that out as well. A Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, now that we've braved Orlane and the swamp known as the Rushmores, what are we going to do now? Let's take off our fake face masks and reveal that we're actually wearing another fake face mask. It's, I, I could pull many off and it wouldn't get anything from this. <laughs>